Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The first vinifera vines were brought to Australia from South Africa in 1788. They came with the first fleet, a group of 11 British ships that sailed for about 250 days to establish a penal colony in Australia. Before sailing across the Indian Ocean, the fleet stopped at Cape Town to gather provisions and they stocked up on pigs, cattle, seeds, and of course, grapevines. They got their cuttings from the Dutch, who, to the first fleet members, had been successful with wine in South Africa already for more than a century. By 1822, one of the early settlers, Gregory Blacksland, had some success with wine production, and he sent some fortified wine to England. Australia's modern wine industry finds its roots a bit later, in the mid-1800s, when James Busby brought Spanish and French cuttings to Australia in 1832. Shortly thereafter, a wave of newcomers arrived from Silesia, a country that no longer exists, but its borders were similar to modern-day Poland. In the mid-1800s, Silesia experienced a period of Lutheran intolerance, and many Lutherans left to seek religious freedom elsewhere. Many of Australia's oldest vineyards were first planted by some of the first Silesians to arrive in Australia. In fact, Australia's historic vineyards are a true treasure trove in the global scheme of things. And in part because of great efforts to keep phylloxera out of certain regions, many of these historic vineyards are still producing fruit. Langmile has a vineyard planted in 1843. Schild Estate has a vineyard that dates to 1847. And more ancient vineyards can be found at Yalumba, Henschke, Torbrek, and Turkey Flat, to name a few. But phylloxera did get to some wine regions, and they were devastated. And that, coupled with economic depression, led to a period of stagnancy, as many wine regions around the world had. Some of the earliest wines that were popular in Australia were sweeter, port-style reds. And many of the early plantings were of Rhone varieties, such as Mouvedre and Syrah. Fortified wines could withstand international transport, they were popular in the domestic market, and they could stand up to storage. A few producers still make these port-style wines, but many have switched over to dry reds in the last 60 years or so. 
In the mid-1900s, Australia's wine industry entered a new period of growth. Wine growing expanded to new regions like the Margaret River, and production in general increased. And even more recently, in the last 15 years, Australia's wine scene has experienced a renaissance of style and variety. But also, in the midst of all the new winemakers and newly planted grape varieties, Australia boasts some incredibly historic wineries that have been producing through several generations. Stay tuned to hear more from one of Australia's older, family-run wineries. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Alistair Perbrick of Tabilk on the show today from Victoria. Tabilk dates back in terms of a property to the mid-19th century. Yeah, Tabilk started in 1860, and th that makes us the oldest in our state of Victoria, one of the oldest in Australia. As and, a winery, it makes you one of the oldest in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and the name Tabilk is Indigenous or Aboriginal. Uh, so Tabilk Tabilk means place of many waterholes. So nice they said it twice. <laughs> that's well, <laughs> yeah, that's one way to look at it. And it was your great-grandfather who originally made the purchase. Yeah, my great-grandfather purchased the property in 1925. <laughs> he purchased it sight unseen from England as a real estate play, now an agricultural real estate play. He thought, because of all the water there, that he could divide all the land up into small dairy blocks uh, and sell it. So that was the only rationale and reason for him to buying it. So he visited the property uh, the year of purchase in 1925, and he Bought his eldest son, my grandfather, Eric, with him, who was doing law and accountancy at Cambridge University in England at the time. Grandfather visited, uh, fell in love with Tabilk, and then went, set about convincing his dad that he didn't want to be a lawyer and accountant in England. He actually wanted to be a winemaker in Australia, and he ultimately convinced him of the merits of that argument and then returned with my father uh, and my grandmother in 1931. So it wasn't like he met a girl there? No. Okay, because no. that would be the normal reason why no. somebody would move, right? So she, she came out from England, so the classic English rose. And what was your grandfather Eric like? I didn't get to know him very well as I was away at school. I was at boarding school. They, they sent you away for boarding school. Yeah, uh, and then I finished school, secondary school, and went to university to learn winemaking. 
Uh, so I was in South Australia for that. So I was a long way from home. So it, uh, and then after that, I worked out in the industry for some years before I got the call to come back home. So it wasn't until I came home and circumstances dictated that dad wasn't around that I really then started to get to know my grandfather through the 1980s. And he, uh, uh, until then, was a very remote figure uh, on some sort of pedestal, if you like. And, uh, you know, he, he was very English and it was, you know, children are seen but not heard. It was that sort of style. So then I started to build my relationship with him through the 1980s uh, and depended on him for a lot of advice, not, not so much winemaking, but business um, and life advice. And uh, we basically fell in love with each other. I, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that I loved him more than my father just before he passed away. Uh, so we were very close. And your father didn't make wine. He was more involved in the marketing. And Eric, Eric did make wine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so grandfather was uh, so Eric was a self-taught winemaker. Dad was a very gregarious, extrovert type guy. So naturally bent towards marketing and sales. Uh, and then I became the first fully qualified winemaker and followed grandfather as the winemaker at Tavilk. So you went to school for winemaking. Yeah. Where did you go to school? At Roseworthy College. What was that experience days. like for you? Well. To put it into some sort of context, the Australian wine industry back in the 1970s was tiny. Uh, I'd call it a cottage industry compared to where it is now. So, uh, and there was only one winemaking college in Australia. So anyone who had aspirations to do that, that's where you ended up. And the industry was pretty much family-owned wineries back in those days. A good statistic 1966, there were 66 wineries in Australia and pretty much every one was family-owned and multi-generational. So I turned up at Roseworthy and met for the first time a whole lot of sons of multi-generational winemakers. Uh, so that was, that was great uh, in the context that then the industry started to get its act together. It was growing quite strongly in the 1990s and, of course, we knew or I knew all the young guys and the occasional girl that decided that they were going to get into winemaking. So it was a really, a really good contact base, and it really, and we all helped each other to try and leapfrog and get ahead of. We didn't see ourselves as competition; we saw ourselves probably as cooperation <laughs> rather than competition. Uh, we saw the international winemakers as our competition. So everything we could do to help each other, we did, and. There's no doubt it paid dividends through the 1990s. Uh, it, it, it helped Australia leapfrog forward and grow quite quickly. So not just everyone in Victoria, but everyone in Australia was at this this college for winemaking. Well, wanted to be involved. Well, well, anyone that wanted to be a winemaker was at this college. But it was not huge numbers because, as I say, it was a very small industry back in those days. Uh, so it was uh, uh, in our course it was 20, and that would have been regarded as a, a large course, and it was every two years. Uh, roughly 10 a year or less than 10 a year. And how would that situation have been similar or different from what your grandfather encountered when he moved to Australia to do wine? Oh, grandfather, as I said, he moved out here in 1931. That was right uh, in the middle of the Great Depression, the Great Global Depression. He made a couple of 
with the benefit of hindsight, courageous decisions. One was he was going to concentrate on table wine. And of course, in those days in Australia, it was fortified wine, beer and spirits. That's what was popular. That, that's, what, that's what was selling, not table wine. So he decided, notwithstanding that, he was going to make table wine. And he also decided that he was going to label some of his table wines by their varietal name. Now, we all take that for granted nowadays, but back then, it was unheard of. Uh, he was a pioneer of varietal labelling in Australia. Uh, so uh, he stopped using terms like claret, burgundy, you know, moselle, hock, you know, all, all of those sort of terms. Uh, and in Australia, uh, those generic European terms were used on most labels up until certainly the 1960s, even through to the mid-1970s. So... So he was very, very early, you know, groundbreaking in that sense of marketing. Yeah, because when we think of Penfold's Grange, it's Penfold's Grange Hermitage for a lot of its life there, right? Exactly. exactly. That life is the 60s, 70s, 80s. Exactly, yeah. And it it took a long time for them to wean wean the name Hermitage out of it, and now it's just Penfold's Grange. Why do you think your grandfather made those decisions? Uh, I, I think his background in England was, you know, and he was brought up, with wine as a, a normal drink uh, around the table. Uh, so uh, he had more of a, a European-style upbringing in England, and that's unusual. So he obviously decided he was going to make a mark and make a difference. Uh, I should add, <laughs> consequently, he didn't sell much wine running up to the Second World War, and it was lucky that we had, or he had a large property in those days, and at least they could feed themselves and sort of get by uh, and do. They the could grow yards. their own food, exactly, uh, and and they could feed all their staff as well. So, so you know, it was subsistence type living, but they got through okay. The big difference was after the Second World War, when Australia had a huge influx of immigrants, a lot of Italians and and Greek immigrants, and they brought, of course, their lifestyle with them, which included wine as a normal part of having a meal. So uh, our fortunes and the small, the rest of the industry, as small as it was, their fortunes all sort of started to look a lot, or they were all looking a lot more optimistically about what was happening through that later part of the 1950s and the 1960s as wine uh, became a, a little bit more a part of the mainstream of, of alcohol consumption in Australia. So do you think your grandfather was trying to impress your great-grandfather with the quality of the wines? I mean, here your great-grandfather had purchased it as a dairy operation that he was going to maybe sell off in different parcels. Then your grandfather decides to focus on table wines, not the obvious choice, like you said, and to do varietal labeling. Was he trying to compete with the other wines that your great-grandfather may have been drinking for quality to sort of impress the old man? He never said that to me, uh, and that wasn't his style. I, I think it was probably more uh, around him looking at what the rest of the industry was doing. All of the other family-owned winemakers were doing fortifieds in a big way. That was the only way to survive. And I think he, he made a judgment call with the benefit of hindsight. It was the wrong judgment call, but nonetheless, he made the judgment call that he was going to concentrate on table wines. It certainly stood him in good stead post-Second World War because he was already well-established and well-recognised for making quality table wines. The other winemakers, when they when things started to change, had to sort of play a little bit of catch-up. But, of course, some played catch-up very quickly, like 
Penfolds, for instance, um, you know, did a very good job, and Wins uh, did a very good job back in those days. So how should I understand this place in terms of Victoria? What's it like to grow grapes there? Because I think a lot of times when we think of Australia here in this country, we don't think necessarily of Victoria. What's it like? Well, we like to think, when I say we, we Victorian wine, winemakers like to think that we have got the most gifted state of all of the states in Australia because we have enough diversity of climate to be able to make terrific sparkling wines where you need cooler climate, running through to a really diverse range of very high quality red and white table wines, and then running up to the northeast of the state to Rutherglen, where we make, well, the, the winemakers there make extraordinary fortified wines. Their muskets and tokays are to die for. So you come back from school, and how does that happen? You went to work for a little bit. You, your wife, her family sold grapes, so you meet her. What's the evolution then to getting married and coming back to the estate? Well, there's two parts to that story. The first part is, had I come back home after I left Roseworthy? I, when I finished Roseworthy, I was lucky enough to get a job with a company called Mildara, which is now part of Treasury Wine Estates, Australia's largest winemaker. Uh, but Mildara had an operation in Merbeen, which is up in the Sunraysia district near Mildura, and also in Coonawarra. And they hadn't appointed a, a winemaker in Coonawarra up until my appointment. So I was then, uh, my first job was in Coonawarra, making Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz dominantly, which was fantastic. It was a great experience. Uh, as a, a graduate just out of college, it's one thing to have a lot of knowledge in the head, it's quite another to have the practical knowledge. So I was very lucky that I had a great foreman, a, a guy who was really, really experienced. And if I started to get a few multiples wrong around acid additions or sulfur additions or anything like that, he'd just come back to me and very nicely say, um, Alistair, do you want to check this calculation? We've never added this much sulfur. Or we've never added this much tartaric before to the, the grapes. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, we learned quickly and... Uh, and I did two vintages there, uh, and it was fantastic. And then they transferred me up to Mervine. So I was, I was sort of then uh, transitioning between both wineries and having a, a wonderful time, and I could see a, a bright career path for myself. So I wasn't even thinking about going home when I got a call from Dad um, saying that Tabilk had a few problems. They, Victoria had had a number of difficult years seasonally so mother nature had not been kind and they were very wet years so it was a, a, a big issue wet years back in those days because we didn't have the technology or we didn't have the sprays to be able to control the basic diseases like mold gray mold and so on so with those number of wet years during the 1970s dad was or, or to bilk was left with a cellar full of, of some pretty mediocre red wine uh, that was going to have to be sold somehow, but not under the Tabilk label, but it was, just wasn't good enough to be under the Tabilk label. So his phone call to me was, to cut kind of, kind of a long story short, he was keen to employ a fully qualified winemaker because grandfather was at an age where he wasn't able to, to continue uh, doing his winemaking, and in any case, he, he wasn't skilled enough to be able to make adjustments if 
he got poor quality grapes, which only a trained winemaker can do. So dad's question to me was pretty simple. Do you want to be the winemaker or am I going to employ outside the family? So I thought about that for a little while and then decided that given I was going to go home anyway, it made sense for me to go home perhaps a little bit earlier than I'd like and not inherit someone else's view of what Tabilk should be rather than wait. So uh, I ended up returning home just after the 1978 vintage. Why did you decide to go into wine originally? I mean, presumably you could have gone the other way from your grandfather and gone into a different industry. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I, I was doing my last year at secondary school and, and I hadn't made up my mind what I was going to do. I'd been flirting with politics, uh, which my great-grandfather had been a politician in, in England. And I got through, finished the exams, got my marks. My, in those days, we all did generic. It was all chemistry, biology, physics, two maths and English. That was Everyone did the same t- subjects. But it meant that you could pretty much go into any course if you got good marks. So, so uh, I got reasonable marks uh, and I had a few options, but I really still hadn't thought about it. And we sat down on Christmas Day. And it was a big family affair, uh, my brother, my sister, mum, dad, uh, m- some of my mother's siblings were there, and of course my grandparents were presiding over the, the whole lunch. We got to the end of the lunch and it was a, a very gay affair and everyone was having a, a terrific time, and grandfather, in a lull in the conversation, just happened to say, uh, oh, Alistair, tell me, have you decided what you're going to do? <laughs> And I hadn't decided, been doing a lot of thinking, but hadn't decided at that stage. And I don't know why, but I just blurted out, oh, grandfather, I've decided I'm going to be a winemaker. Now, as soon as the words were out, I was mortified. (laughs) It was not planned at all. But the words were there. They'd been put on the table. and, And I thought about it later on in the afternoon and thought, well, maybe it's not such a bad idea after all. I'd better have a talk to my father and just see how the hell you go about doing a winemaking course. Where do you do it? I had absolutely no idea. So later that evening, I, I spoke to Dad and said, well, I've committed to this winemaking thing now. Do you know where I might go to be trained as a winemaker? And he said, yes, you'll go to Roseworthy College. Uh, the induction is only every two years and you've missed one induction, so you'll have to do agricultural science first. Said, I've arranged an interview for you for mid-January <laughs> and, uh, and, we'll go, uh, and I'll come over with you. He had it all planned. Uh, don't ask me how. Don't, I, I have no idea to this day. If how. only you'd blurted out fighter pilot, you know, your whole life would be different. Well, now. maybe then dad would say, oh, look, and I've, uh, I've got the fighter pilot course, uh, course organized for you. We've got an interview at such and such. I, look, I don't know. Maybe uh, he that's still would have said, we got the agricultural <laughs> course lined up for you. You know what I mean? said, no, you want to think that again? Yeah, we've got the, we've got, let's, let's try Roseworthy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The best yeah. pilots come out yeah. of there. Roseworthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a well-known. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the rest is history. So that's exactly what I did. I went over for the interview. I was accepted, did two years agriculture, qualified for the next wine course and finished. So you come back in the late 70s. There's been some down vintages. 
but yet you become closer with your grandfather. Well, I started in May of 1978, and and Dad was the chief executive then, and Grandfather was semi-retired. He he never retired. He never fully retired uh, un, until he passed away. So Dad said, the first thing we've got to do is improve the quality of our white wines. And so I've got a budget. Uh, we're going to sell some land because we, we were asset heavy, but we had no cash, you know, because of the poor years that they'd had previously uh, with uh, the poor quality red wines. So uh, he, he said, we can, this is the budget. I'll sell this land to get this amount of money, and I need you to design the white wine fermentation cellar, and we need to have it in and ready for the 1979 vintage. Basically, that was the task that was set to me, uh, you know, first up, uh, and uh, we just got on with that. Uh, he did his bit and, and raised the money. I did my bit and designed the winery, ordered the equipment, uh, and we had it up and running for the 1979 vintage. But it's a little surprising because you have white wine vines that date back to 1927 on the property. So in that 50-year period, there wasn't really a white wine facility. No. The, the, before 1979... All the white grapes were made using what I'd loosely call traditional red wine making techniques, which involved mainly a warm fermentation. And what a warm fermentation means for a white wine is that all of those delicate aromatics are going to get burnt off in the heat of the fermentation. So you'll end up with a fairly neutral dry white. Now, that might be good for making sherry or a fortified white, but it's not good for table wine. In those days, there was no stainless steel, refrigeration, you know, all the things that winemakers take for granted now, they didn't have those. So, so there, there weren't any reasonable white wines made in Australia except for those wines that were kept in bottle uh, and the Hunter Valley particularly did that. Uh, occasionally with Marsan at Tabilk, that happened because... All the magic of those styles actually happens with bottle age, but it's considerable bottle age. So they've got to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years old before they start actually showing how good they can be. So as long as you kept them, then, or if you didn't keep them, but you just had a few bottles lying around, you might have got a surprise 10 or 15 years later when you just happened to open one. So by and large, though, if we're talking about current consumption, no, there wasn't any decent white wine made in Australia. Because when you open up those old Terrell's Semillons now from the Hunter, they're pretty good wines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's the key. If, if, you're, if you want to make a white wine that's got huge cellaring possibilities, that's actually using those, let's call them loosely traditional red wine making techniques, is actually a good way to do it. But, you're not gonna, but that's not going to make a commercial style, you know, something that you can sell in year of vintage or as a, as a two-year-old wine or a three-year-old wine. But, uh, but they were the only wines made that way that actually could shine. And there's still some great examples of them around, you know, from the 1950s and the 1960s. The, uh, as part of Tabilk's 150th celebration in 2010, so only five years ago, we did a vertical tasting of all of the Marsans that we had in cellar, so going back to Grandfather's Day, and there are a couple of wines that actually just stood out as being exceptional, and one was the 1959 Marsan, made using those very old, rudimentary, traditional techniques. 
but to make a wine that's going to be a great wine with age, it actually does work. And why was it that you had Marsan planted at the property in the first place? Seems an odd choice. Why would it be there? It, yeah, it, it was an odd choice. Uh, believe it or not, Marsan was planted in the 1860s. Then it was lost with Phylloxera uh, in the late 1880s, early 1900s, and then grandfather replanted it in 1927. So why was it planted uh, in the late 1860s? Uh, again, a mystery. Uh, there's a, a few mysteries around Tabuk, which we'll never solve. Uh, but the winemaker manager of the day was a Burgundian who'd done a lot of winemaking in the Rhone Valley. And I, our logic or assumption is that he decided that the climate around Tabuk was very similar to the Rhone Valley and Hermitage in particular, and he had planted all of the Hermitage whites and red varieties. And so when you plotted out a white wine program, what was in your mind and what did you decide to do? How did you set it up exactly? What I wanted to achieve really was the ability to be able to cool the must, so immediately after crushing the fruit. I wanted to be able to obviously cool the fermentations and I wanted to be able to clean up the juice so that you didn't have any phenolic issues. Now, the equipment that was available uh, in the late 70s was pretty basic. You could certainly get stainless steel, you could get refrigeration, but the presses weren't that sophisticated and the filters were pretty primitive as well. So I armed the seller with, I guess, the best equipment that was around for that time. We've since upgraded dramatically, though, from what we had then. Uh, but having said that, we were at least on an e even pairing with the competition with what I put in, and then we continued to upgrade, of course, as better equipment came along. So, so we had instant success with those wines. Um, the two of those 1979 wines, a Semillon and a Riesling, both went on to win gold medals and trophies, and Tabilk had never won a medal, let alone a gold uh, or a trophy. And that's a big yeah. thing in Australia. Yeah, yeah. That's in, and certainly back in those days, medals sold wine. Nowadays, it's probably more the influencers, wine, the wine journos probably sell more. But back in those days, that's what uh, consumers sort of found attractive. So you had a lot of medals on the wine, then the assumption was, hmm, must be pretty good. Either that or he did several campaigns on the war. You know, one of those two. So, so. <laughs> oh, either that or, you, or you're counterfeiting. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> you were almost an airline pilot, you know, a fighter pilot with all the medals, and he went the other way. So 1979, what was that like for you as a harvest? That was pretty good. Uh, pretty good. I, I always, I don't get hung up on the season running up to when you start picking. You know, if, whether it's wet, whether it's warm, whether it's cool, Dry doesn't matter, uh, but what's really important is the weather we get uh, during harvest. And if we can get good, stable weather with not a lot of rain, which keeps uh, the disease pressure down, then we're generally going to have a, a pretty good year, particularly for our reds. Uh, 79 was, was a dry harvest, and the reds came out pretty well. And, of course, the whites with the new equipment surprised everybody. And how many bottles of white are we talking about here? Well, it was a 300-tonne capacity white fermentation cellar so uh, that's about 20,000 cases 20,000 dozen and that was full you did that yep. you, you processed 300 yep. tons of grapes yeah that, that yep. seems like a fair amount yeah so it must have been a, a large influx of cash then 
because you sold it, right? You probably sold those wines right away. Well, we did. Well, there was there was the cost to put it into bottle, uh, but they were young, fresh whites. So they were going straight into the bottle, out to the market, you know, and then we bottled on demand even in those days. So, so it wasn't a huge impost. Hopefully you, you had as much more money coming back in to cover the, the cost of the, of the bottling. Uh, so, that, so that worked out okay. But what it did do for Tabilk, though, was uh, allowed us to broaden from our red wine offering to offer the whites, introduce Marsan as a completely different style to what grandfather had been making. And that captured a, a lot of attention and the, the sales grew quite dramatically. And how did you find it to grow Marsan? Oh, Marsan as a grape is, is really easy to grow. Uh, I, wish, I wish all varieties were, were as easy. Uh, and it's got tough little berries too. It's a bit like Cabernet Sauvignon. So it can withstand quite a lot of disease if the weather goes against you during harvest. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of Marsan. It's a shame that there's not more fans of Marsan around the world. Because you have one of the largest plantings of it in yeah, the world. Yeah, we do. The, uh, we've got about 100 acres of our 550 acres of Marsan. It is the largest single holding of that variety in the world, which is simply goes to show that it's, a, it's not a niche varietal. It's a micro-niche varietal, really. Uh, the, the rest of Marsan is a little bit in California. There's, there's some, obviously, in Hermitage or in the Rhone Valley, a little bit in Switzerland. Uh, and a little bit uh, in other regions around Australia, but they're all, when I say little bit, I mean little bit. They're just very small acreages of, of that particular variety. Uh, our 1927 uh, planted Marsan, we thought for a long time was the oldest Marsan in the world. It's certainly the oldest in Australia, but uh, my friend Michel Chaputier found an older patch that survived Phylloxera in Hermitage, which none of us thought existed, which was a late 1890s planted patch. Uh, so he was so excited about that, he went and bought it. <laughs> In terms of Marsan, when I think of the Hunter Valley Semions, there's a few producers, but not so many producers of Marsan. Did other people in Australia not take it up? No, uh, and have, have never taken it up. So as it stands to this day, I could probably only count 12 or 13 Marsan varietal producers uh, spread right across Australia. There's there's one uh, in Margaret River, for instance. Uh, there's a, a, a small number in Victoria and there's a couple in New South Wales. And uh, Darrenberg do a blend in in McLaren Vale. But no, uh, you know, we, we've been passionate about Marsan for such a long time that you'd think some of our passion might have infected other winemakers, but it just hasn't been the case. And a lot of times in France, Marsan is blended with Roussan or sometimes in a Cote de Rhone white with like Grenache Blanc, mm -hmm. but you bottle it by itself. Correct. And why do you make that choice? Well, we've, we've experimented with blends, uh, but we just prefer it as a varietal. We've also experimented with barrel fermenting, all of it, part of it, uh, and seeing what that does to the style. We, we don't like that either. Uh, and, but most of the other Marsans that are made in Australia and in Hermitage, certainly have at least a bit of uh, oak ferment or barrel ferment, if not a lot, and some are fully done, fully worked, as we say. So the full malolactic, so big, rich, buttery style. We feel that Marsan is a really delicately fruited varietal, so anything that you might add as a winemaker trick just detracts from its fruit purity, and we would rather showcase the fruit 
uh, you know, and allow it to shine in its own right. Sometimes I hear growers who make marsan in other countries complain about the lees of marsan. Do you remove it from the lees right away, or do you give lees contact to your different marsan bottlings? No, no, we we don't do any lees contact to any of our white wines. Uh, we do with our reds. Again, with a delicately fruited varietal like marsan, you can't afford to have extended skin contact because it'll pick up phenolics, so it'll be quite tannic. Lees contact gives a, a different element, a taste element to the middle palate. If you like that element, fine, uh, but I don't particularly like it. So we're really trying to make a very clean style, very clean lean, you know, good acid balance, good acid backbone, and a, a variety uh, with that which has the possibility to also age uh, into the future. And you make a couple Marsan, and what's the difference between them? We, we only make two Marsans, although we have three pricing levels. Uh, we uh, make That's tricky. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can explain. It sounds complex. So we, the two styles we make is one style is about uh, oxygen exclusion and flavor retention. And that's what I've just been talking about with our entry-level Marsan. Uh, so that's made with everything that technology can provide so that we end up maximizing the fruit flavor. And when it comes out uh, in Euro Vintage, then it's looking really fresh. Uh, it goes with a lot of food and people really enjoy it. And that wine will also continue to improve for about a decade. So we keep back 25% of each vintage and we then release what we call the Museum Release Marsan as about a five or six-year-old wine. But it's exactly the same as the other. It's just with... It's a late release in bottle. It's just a late release in bottle. So that's our second tier. So it's still the one wine, but it gives us our second tier. And then we have uh, our single vineyard wine. So uh, this is a, a wine made from grapes grown on the 1927 planted vines. And that's all about maximising the oxygenation of the grapes and no flavour retention at all. Going back to the old way of making the white wines, just to sort of paint some words around it, we hand harvest at the temperature of the day. So the fruit could come in at 25 or 30 degrees centigrade. Then we don't add any chemicals at all at the crusher. So the juice is brown and fully oxidized. Then we clean the juice up through a filter and ferment it. And because we've picked those grapes earlier, as they do in the Hunter Valley with Semyon, uh, we've got a very high natural acidity as well. And we get to the end of the primary ferment and we have a water white, very acidic, flavorless white wine. Now, you can't sell that on the open market as a young wine. If we didn't have an inkling of where that wine is going to go with bottle age, and if I had a winemaker present that to me, I'd sack the winemaker. Or conversely, I'd sack myself <laughs> as to Bilk's winemaker for making such a poor wine. It's a, it's a, a real ugly duckling into beautiful swan story. Uh, so we stabilise the white wine immediately after vintage. So this is this white, high acid, flavourless white wine. Cold stabilise straight into the bottle. And then we monitor it, uh, and it's after about six or seven years that you start to see some of that bottle development uh, and the potential of what, what is going to be. Uh, and then we start showing it in the national shows in Australia. 
Uh, and we don't release this particular wine until it's won a trophy. And it usually takes eight or nine years to win its first trophy. And then they start tumbling after that. This is a wine that we've made that's going to be at its best as a 30, 40, 50-year-old wine. Do the trophy guys ever give you a hard time and be like, yeah, maybe next year you can release all that wine. We're going to, you know, they're just like, no, no, you don't get it this year. Sorry, better hold on to those bottles. You know. uh, I, I think we have won a couple of trophies, though, where they've mistaken that particular Marsan for a hunter, se- a young hunter semi. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, and, uh, and particularly with the Sydney Wine Show, uh, and Bruce Tyrrell has sometimes chastised me for – in his words, bringing in a, it's, it's like a Trojan horse. So you actually yeah. picked the single vineyard parcel earlier than the normal Marsan. The harvest is yes. earlier. Yes. Yep. So we, we pick it at, at around 105 to 11.5% alcohol equivalency, which is quite green compared to our normal or entry-level Marsan, which is more like a 125 to 13.5% alcohol equivalency. So when the idea is for it to age for quite a while, as you were describing, is there more sulfur addition with that in mind? Do you add a fair amount of sulfur to make it a longer-lasting wine? No, no. It is it's it is really about minimal chemical additions, including sulfur. So the only time it gets a chemical addition is just prior to bottling, and it gets a normal top-up to what's regarded as, as a normal free sulfur level for a white wine. But it's going from a zero base to that level. But, but it's not excessive. Uh, now, there are white wines that I've tried from bygone days where excessive sulfur has been used and it has kept the wine in a reasonably good condition. Uh, but that's not the case with our wines. So it does most of its evolution in the bottle. Yes. Which is probably why it takes a while. Yeah. Because if you did it in the winery, it would go faster. Well, no, stainless steel's inert, so it's, it's not going to go any faster. But it's fair to say, though, that the more intensely fruited a young white wine is, the more quickly it'll age. The lower the acidity, the more quickly it'll age. The higher the alcohol, the more quickly it'll age. You combine all of that together and then add some winemaker tricks like barrel fermentation and uh, malolactic fermentation, then all of a sudden you're building a, a lot of fat around the skeleton, that middle palate, and the fatter it is as a young wine, the quicker it'll develop and ultimately, like a lemming, fall over the cliff. Does that viewpoint put you at odds with certain other white wine makers in Australia? Because I feel like there's not so many wines that are made the way that you're describing that are white. Not, not, not so much putting us at odds. Uh, I think winemakers have their own way of expressing what they want in, in different wines. I will say, though, that in Australia, we've got three white varieties, which have got and will continue to have from some regions and some winemakers fantastic cellaring potential. So Riesling from places like Eden Valley and Clare Valley, they can be extraordinary. Very good young wines, a bit like Marsan, very good young wines, but with the acid backbone and the tightness to be able to age for a good period. And of course, we've talked about Hunter Semyon. They've been doing it for a long time and they continue to do it really well. And those wines also age beautifully. Sometimes in the Rhone, you find Marsan and Marsan blends to go through a shutdown period. Like they'll actually taste oxidative like 10 years in, and then they'll taste less oxidative like 20 years in or 30 years in. But it sounds like your wines don't go through the same curve. Not in that sense that you've just put, but the white wines and 
if we're talking about the wines at the cellar well, so Riesling, Semillon and Marsan, they sometimes can go through a little bit of a, a dip in quality and that's generally where there's you're evolving slowly from fresh fruit only to incorporating some bottle age. Generally, if it's going to happen, it'll be when they're around two, three, four years of age. So a bit of a dip down in flavour will be the, the fresh fruit is now starting to integrate into the more complex bottle-aged flavours. And then it takes a little while for those flavours to grow to match the intensity of the fresh fruit as it would have been. So the two Marsan, say 10 years in, what are the flavors like that are found in one and the other? How are they different with significant bottle age? Yeah, well, as you'd imagine, they're quite different because of the way they're made. And, you know, there is no way that they could end up looking the same after a period of time. So with the entry-level Marsan, which is made excluding oxygen and maximizing flavor retention, that develops after about three or four years a lovely toast and honey or honeysuckle flavour, and it, it always does. And then that just adds meat around the, the skeleton, if you like, around the middle palate, and the, the wine continues to grow in power, and those toasty flavours and honey flavours just continue to become more and more intense, and the wine broadens out until ultimately it's broadened as far as it can, and then it falls off the edge. Those wines, as I said earlier, they're made to be enjoyed from year of release, for the first decade, but they can go on for 15 and 20 years uh, and, and still look quite smart. The single vineyard wine, the 1927 Vines wine, because of the way it's made and the slow burn of cellaring, it's as a seven or eight-year-old wine, given that it had very little flavour as a young wine, as a seven or eight-year-old wine, it starts to develop some uh, what I call lanoline flavours. It's very textural, much more textural and complex than our entry-level Marsan. And those flavours continue to grow and they're always wrapped around with lovely minerality. And then that just continues to grow. But you never see the toast or the honeysuckle flavours in that wine. What would you eat with those wines? I've actually found that the the 1927 vines went incredibly well with Thai food, which mm -hmm. was a big surprise for me. Yeah. Um, but what has been your own experience serving those wines with food? Yeah, I, I think both actually matched to similar foods, uh, notwithstanding their different flavor profile. But seafood is a no-brainer. Uh, lightly spiced food uh, with a bit of cellaring and age absolutely works. Uh, the white meats chicken dishes and spiced chicken dishes, absolutely fantastic. Pork works well with an older Marsan, you know, if you've got a seven or eight or nine or ten-year-old Marsan. So the older they get, the more, the more foods and the more variety of foods that you can match them with, and it can be quite fun. Do you find yourself decanting such wines or do you usually just drink them right out of the bottle? Straight out of the bottle. Yeah. As long as it lasts, right? Yeah, as long as it lasts, yeah, yeah, which in our house is not that long. But uh, <laughs> And what about Riesling in your area? You mentioned Riesling and the Eden and the Clare. What's it like to grow for you? Well, we'd like to think that we do Riesling in our region, in the Gamby Lakes, as well as Clare or Eden Valley Riesling. But we've got so few winemakers in our region, number one, and number two, only two of us of the few actually do Riesling. Uh, we just haven't got a critical mass uh, 
of our region's Rieslings out in the marketplace. So we've never been able to make a reputation for it, which is a shame. Uh, but uh, And we've had a lot of masked tastings uh, where we've had Rieslings from all around Australia, uh, along with our own in the lineup. And a lot of times our Rieslings are picked as Clare, not so much Eden Valley, but as Clare. Well, it can't be a bad thing, right? No, it's not, not <laughs> such a bad thing. So it sort of gives you a sense of the style. You know, so lo lots of lime and citrus, uh, also some mineral flavours that run around the edge. So you retooled the white lineup. What did you do with the reds when you took over in the late 70s? So the reds then got some focus from me after I got my first vintage away in 1979. And uh, at the, by that stage, Dad had decided that he was moving to Sydney to start a sales organisation. And that was really interesting at the Christmas party of 1978. Uh, so it was before my first vintage. A lot goes uh, down at these parties, these, these family parties. parties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Loose <laughs> lips. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, so another party, but this included some staff. At that stage, uh, between family and, and um, non-family, we had maybe 10 people working at Tabuk. And so everyone was having a good time uh, at, the, at the Christmas party. And uh, Dad called everyone to attention and uh, they thought, you know, he's going to get up and say a few nice words about the year that's been and ha how good we've been. Thank you, like, Tom. Yeah, thank exactly, thank you, exactly. Paul. Uh, you know, yeah, here's a present. Yeah, and, yeah, a little bonus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so he, he got up and uh, said, uh, well, uh, I've, I've got some news which I'd like to share with you all uh, and then rolled out his plan to start this sales organisation in Sydney. The interesting thing with that was that he actually hadn't told anyone. He told everyone at that Christmas party, including our, our non-family staff. So mum didn't know, grandfather didn't know. He certainly hadn't confided in me <laughs> and he hadn't confided in any of the staff. So as you can imagine, there was a very pregnant silence immediately he finished speaking. I don't know what he expected. And then one of our, our vineyard managers piped up and said, well, John, if you're going to start up this business in Sydney, who's going to run to Bilk? And Dad said, well, Alistair. Well, that was news to me. That was news to Grandfather. <laughs> so anyway, that's what happened. So at the ripe old age of 25, I became de facto general manager of, of Tabilk. Which in part explains why then I started to lean on grandfather so heavily uh, and uh, and why we got to know each other so well uh, and, uh, you know, and, and love each other so much um, and respect each other so much as we got to know each other. Now it was, so it was, it was actually, as it turned out with hindsight, I mean, you know, what dad did was pretty irresponsible. You don't want to put a 25-year-old in front of or in charge of anything really without any experience, uh, but... As it turned out, we sort of muddled our way through. Uh, grandfather was a good backstop for me, and Dad was remarkably successful with his sales operation in, in New South Wales. What is it that you make today that's red? So uh, with, with our red wines, then I devoted some time and, and attention to uh, through the 80s to what I could or should do uh, with the wine style that Grandfather had effectively set up and putting aside some of those poorer years through the 1970s and looking at some of the terrific wines that have been made through the 1950s and 1960s. And I, I certainly 
respected and enjoyed those wines because they had a bit of cellaring on them. Um, they were mid-weight, they were flavourful, um, they were going to continue to age and age well, and they were quality wines. So I didn't have any any problems with that. My winemaking peers, though, uh, were looking at a lot of other ways to make red wine, which we'd been taught at Roseworthy. And there was a fair bit of pressure on me at the time from my peers, from my friends, to change to bilk style from the traditional style to something that was much more modern. Uh, I must say I succumbed to their their words uh, in the earlier days uh, and when I'd put it to grandfather that perhaps we should modernise our red wine making, he would ask me to explain exactly what I had in mind but he insisted that we would do that down in his cellar and he'd open a bottle of one of the wines that he'd made in the 50s and 60s and we'd drink that and he'd hear me out. So we, we did this a number of times. It was probably five or six times and I was getting a little frustrated towards the end of that thinking I just wasn't getting anywhere here and I think grandfather could sense that and so one final time he said, okay, let's go down to the cellar, have a wine and tell me one last time exactly why you want to change the style. So he opened up what he, and I think it's true, what he regarded as the best red wine he'd ever made, which was a, a 1962 Cabernet Sauvignon. So he poured it, we drank it. It was a terrific wine. No, no, no doubt about that. And I finished telling him my story, which I'd already told him five or six times. So we got to the end of it, uh, and he then looked at me and said, well, Alistair, before we continue the discussion, what did you think of this wine? I waxed lyrical about it. I told him how good it was, and I understood that if he thought it was the best wine that he'd made, then, you know, it certainly was was up in that sort of realm and category from my perspective. So then he just casually sort of looked over at me and said, uh, well, Alistair, we've been doing this for a little while now. You've been very complimentary about the wines and extremely complimentary about this last wine that you've had. He said, so tell me, why do you want to change the style? You talk about light bulb moments. This flash went off in my head like I'm being pressured by my friends. There's no good reason for that. Actually, what we can make here is pretty smart. And that's where I then launched myself along the the journey of let's see how we can incrementally improve the pedigree but without changing the pedigree. So we've stuck with our knitting all the way through and certainly with the benefit of hindsight, I'm really pleased that we did that because Australia went through a lot of different winemaking cycles through the 80s and the early part of the 90s before we got our act together and now all of Australia's super flagship or super premium red wines are made using traditional red wine making techniques, you know, which we've stuck with all the way through. But it took all my friends a, a journey to end up back where I didn't stray from, as it turned out. But it was a close-run thing. <laughs> so it was grandfather's wisdom that saved the day. And like with the white wines, you also had some old vine rats. Oh, yes. Uh, we're, we're blessed that we've got about 80 acres of, of our 550 acres uh, is old vine material. We've got a, an original block that dates back to 1860 
uh, which uh, is certainly amongst the oldest Shiraz vines in the world, and we make a single vineyard wine out of that. That's now our most sought-after and certainly most expensive wine, our equivalent, if you like, of Hinchke Hill of Grace of, of Penfolds Grange. And it's that parcel and that your grandfather's assets were spread on. Yes, yes, that's correct. That was that was his wish, uh, and he fell in love with the idea of doing single old vine vineyard bottlings, which he hadn't done in his day. Uh, so our first 1860 vines release was from my first vintage, 1979. Uh, so he, he loved that. We've also got uh, other old vines. Well, we've talked about the 1927 planted Marsan, but we've got 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s planted Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon. So uh, all of that stands us in really good in, in really good stead to be able to continue to produce for our super premiums, uh, running up to icon wines, uh, yeah, having fruit of that quality. You know, I mean, the fruit's great. We can only muck it up in the winery. So, so there's no excuses. The other thing that I did with uh, our red wines, uh, which was for the first time was in 1992, was the introduction of some new uh, French oak. And before that, everything was aged in old oak. And when I say old oak, it was at least 100 years old, could be even, you know, today, some of the originals at 154 years of age. So you don't get any oak flavour out of those. They serve a really good, uh, they serve well as a maturation vessel. So the slow oxidation of the raw fruit flavours into more complex flavours, but no oak pickup. So I thought, well, as part of improving the pedigree, maybe if we introduced a little bit of new oak, that without it being obvious. So we still wanted the fruit to be the hero, uh, but maybe some nuance of oak just sitting in the background supporting the fruit could work. So we experimented with that and we were happy with the results. So we've continued with that since 1992. Uh, we played around with a little bit of new American oak through the later part of the 90s, found out that that didn't quite work as well as French oak. So certainly from the 2000s and on, it's just been new French oak. And the new French oak component in our red wines could be anything from 20 to 30%. So it's not a huge component. The rest is the old oak component. And the 2000s is also a decade where it seems you feel that the wines were quite successful. You like the wines that you made. We have had an unbelievable run aided by Mother Nature. Now, you might say that that sounds pretty crazy. You know, everyone's being challenged by Mother Nature at the moment. And we had a drought from 1997 vintage through to 2010 vintage. So quite a long drought. Because we're blessed with water, though, we can, with our water right, take as much water out of the system as we want. We've just got to pay for it. So it's, it's simply a cost of production. So for us, having those dry years through the drought meant that we didn't have any disease problems at all, and we had trouble-free harvests. So we were able to get the red grapes to peak ripeness every year from that period, you know, so a long period, 97 through to 2010. So it was, it's been fantastic, what's that, 12 or 13 years of red wines of a higher quality than average running up to some great years. So it's been, been terrific. Then we had a turn. Mother Nature dealt us a very wet year in 2011. You've got to take that on the, on the chin. That's going to happen from time to time. But we've immediately gone back into dry seasons again. So a little blip with 2011. We didn't release any 2011. It just wasn't good enough. 
it was probably similar in quality to the wines that dad and grandfather had in the 1970s, you know, due to Mother Nature and all the wet years they had then. So 2011, a bit of a blip, and then 12, 13, 14, and 15 have been, again, terrific years. So we've had a long period, apart from one year, of very, very solid red wines being made. You have this old vine material. Are you taking cuttings and replanting, or do you use clonal material, or how is it that you work in the vineyard? The one vineyard that we are concerned about is the 1860 planted Shiraz. Those old vines aren't going to continue on forever. Uh, We had a frost in 2006, which impacted badly on our yields for the 2007 vintage. We were 75% down. In other words, we made 25% of normal. That's not so bad normally because the vines bounce back the year after really well and you should get a normal crop. But those 1860 planted vines really got hit badly and about half of them died because of that frost, which was amazing. So I guess the analogy for me is, you know, if we had a centennial, you know, someone who's just over 100 years of age, they've been getting through pretty well, they're pretty fit, but they just have a slip and break their hip. A lot of times they don't come back from that, you know, even though they were in pretty good condition for their age before it. And I think that's what happened with those old girls. They they were simply hit with something that was unprecedented, a frost that was that cold. It was minus six degrees centigrade. It was really cold. And some of them just could not come back from it. So that took us from an annual production, which was small anyway, of around 200 to 250 dozen. Now it's about 100 to 150 dozen. So our concern is they're not going to live forever. So we've actually taken cuttings from those old vines because it's quite a different clone to the other Shiraz we have on our vineyards. And we've planted two vineyards, one on identical soil, very sandy soil, to where the current old vineyard is, and another on a very rocky, hard uh, soil where we think, uh, you know, we're going to get some pretty good quality grapes ultimately once they are a little bit older. And do you find the vigor is different for the kind of area that you're in than you might find in, say, France for some of the same varieties? I think it would be fair to say that our vigor would be higher than a lot of the vineyards in traditional countries or European countries simply because we can irrigate, whereas for the most part, those vineyards in France particularly are dryland vineyards. So with water, obviously, you're going to get more vigor in the canopy, and so you've got to control the canopy. And we do that with our old older vines as well. So we would rather ensure that there is moisture in the soil at the critical times when the vines need it, the critical times being bud burst, uh, at flowering and set, and at veraison. Veraison is where, uh, for the reds, the hard little berries, green berries, then start to develop colour and go on and so on. So they're the three times where, as long as you've got good moisture in the soil, you're going to definitely produce very good quality red grapes, provided the harvest weather is is with you. So the only then the only challenge for us is to make sure that we manage the canopies well, because you do still need to get some penetration and air penetration to ensure that the quality of the grapes, the resultant grapes, is very good. Whereas if you're not irrigating that's going to naturally take place because you just won't have the foliage and the canopy density that we have when we water. 
Speaking about water, you also developed a wetlands project in the area. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we started with what we just thought was a very good idea back in 1995. So it was before anything uh, in terms of the environment was on uh, many people's radar. Uh, we just had uh, some low-quality agricultural land. Uh, it was very flood-prone, and we thought that it would be nice to regenerate that with lost natives, uh, native plants. And there was a number of shallow, what would have been shallow billabongs, uh, which had the entrances had been pugged up by stock abuse over many years. Uh, when we thought, well, you know, why don't we be a bit creative, get an excavator in, uh, gently open up those little shallow waterways and see what happens and we'll just make it a project. Uh, well, what happened was water went back into these gullies that hadn't been there for over 100 years and all of the aquatic life that was there just came up. We didn't have to add anything. And then we revegetated the farmland around it that used to be native vegetation. And the rest is history. It just all grew at a pace. Then we started thinking about after seven or eight years, hmm, you know, this is pretty neat. You know, we've now got a wildlife reserve. We've got this whole wetland, new wetlands, rejuvenated wetlands area. What else can we do with it? And from that came the concept of building uh, the, the Tabuk Cafe or restaurant uh, and opening up that whole wetlands area to the general public, uh, which we did in 2005. Uh, and so now we have a 30-seater battery-powered boat, which can take people out on weekends for, for an hour's cruise, or they can get off that, let's call it taxi, water taxi, at three designated spots and do anything from a 20-minute to a, a two-hour walk in, around and over the wetlands area. We've got lots of boardwalks, we've got bird hides, we get lots of bird watchers coming out. Uh, it's, it's really added terrific value to what we've been doing on site. So you get a number of visitors then? Yeah, well, it's doubled our, our visitors since then. And yeah, we get, we get something of the order of about 130,000 people a year. 130,000? Yeah. That seems like a lot. Uh, well, we think it's a lot. And, uh, and it's great. It works really well. So, so we've got the combination of uh, history, heritage, the old bricks and mortar, underground cellars, you know, a lot of the original buildings, as well as our ecotourism arm. And that seems to have really engaged with people and motivated them to come and see what we've got going on there. And I could imagine that would translate into a lot of cellar door sales. People visiting might buy a bottle. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, if you, we're, we're a little bit off the beaten track. So if you're going to come all the way out, uh, it, it seems pretty crazy not to buy a bottle or two. So that must be nice for you. I mean, in terms of having 500 acres of vines, that's a good market for you in a time when sometimes Australia struggles to find markets in different areas of the world. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a terrific market for us. In fact, uh, it, our, our cellar door uh, and wine club sales account for about 65% of our total to build branded sales. So it's been a terrific success. More than that, though, it's the only business model in our industry where the winery actually has a direct connection and interaction with the end consumer. All the other ways to get to market are through intermediaries. You know, we have to have an importer to get it to a distributor, to get it to a retailer or to a restaurant. Uh, and it's the same in Australia. We need a distributor to get it to a restaurateur or a retailer. And, and so you're relying on a lot of people along the chain to be loving your brand and doing the right thing by your brand when they've got competing brand pressure from other independent winemakers who are also wanting attention. Yeah, so it's, it's challenging. 
Because it, it seems like the Australian wine market, at least in terms of exports, has gone up and come down and gone up. And it must be somewhat interesting from your viewpoint to watch. What did that feel like? Well, yeah, it, it's it's I having been in the industry now for forty odd years. You know, I think I've seen it all. So I've seen us go from a cottage industry, uh, which was pretty fragmented. There wasn't a lot of cooperation. Uh, there wasn't a lot of cohesion between the winemakers, even through the 1980s. Then uh, as an industry, we started crafting some plans together, particularly about how we would attack exports. And we did it with a view that we wanted to be in competition with our international competitors. And internally, it really wasn't going to be competition because we can grow our market share and everyone could be winners. So everyone could participate and everyone could do well out of it. So that's what we embarked upon. And the export success was was uh, quite dramatic. I mean, huge, right? Yeah. I mean, at that period of time, it was a big deal. It went from uh, $160 million of exports in 1990 to just over a billion dollars in the year 2000 and grew ultimately to around three odd billion dollars, which has now come back. So we're in a negative cycle. But we've learned a few lessons about that, though. Unfortunately, a lot of the growth, because we had a weak Australian dollar, was at the lower end of the market or the lower end of the pyramid. So in US dollar terms, sub $10. Uh, in fact, uh, when Yellowtail was launched in the early 2000s, it went to sub $5 per bottle. So unfortunately, in America, uh, the re the residual effect of that is that we still have the dominant players in the category are at the cheaper end of the market. And part of what I'm trying to achieve as an individual winemaker and what we're trying to achieve as Australia's first families of wine is to showcase the diversity and quality of what Australia can do at the higher price points. Uh, and uh, in in um, America speak, you know, in the twenty dollars plus retail price points, and you know, if we can engage with consumers and uh, get them to at least have enough trust to experiment with what Australia's got to offer uh, at those higher retail price points, then I think that will have been a good job done by us. And I'm hoping other Australian winemakers will come in and do either individually or collectively a similar thing to really beat that drum about what Australia can do because it's it's a secret to many people in America at the moment uh, of just you know what the quality offering is out of Australia. So you think there's the room is really at the top of the market or at least the the higher middle part of it. Yeah, I I think if we're going to build a reputation, a global reputation as quality winemakers then we have to have people try the wines that we are selling at those higher price points and make a judgment. We're going to back ourselves. We think, we think that the wines will stand up to any international comparison, but we've got to get people to try them first, you know, to have the courage to try, to spend a little bit more than they might normally try, and then they can make a, their judgment call. Uh, we're pretty confident if we can just get them to try it, then... I think they will then understand that Australia actually can do it and can stand you know, with the best wines that are made 
from anywhere in Europe. And what's left for Alistair to achieve? It seems like you've turned out an immense number of very high quality vintages across a range of wines. Some are undoubtedly the best of their idiom. What's next for you? What are you planning? I'm quite happy continuing on <laughs> and hopefully you know, each vintage you know, turning out wines that, uh, that I'm proud of. But if I look at the next generation coming through, my daughter, uh, who's quite ambitious, unfortunately away on maternity leave at the moment, but is, uh, will be back uh, soon. Don't plan any Christmas dinners. In a, uh, in, in a, <laughs> you never know what will happen. Uh, she, she doesn't wait around for Christmas dinners <laughs> to tell me. Yeah. So she'll just get me aside and say, okay, so this is the plan. And this is when I think you should be retiring. <laughs> well, it's kind of like what your dad did. <laughs> so It's a family tradition. That's a family tradition. Yeah. What do you think has most surprised you over the years? I think from a wine industry perspective, the most surprising thing for me is how an industry could come from being nothing in a relatively short period of time to be actually a very successful global industry and a, and a very good economic contributor to Australia. You know, I wouldn't have thought that you would be able to take what I knew the industry was when I first started in it, in a, a short period like 20 years, turn it around to become a, well, a superstar might be uh, a little bit a generous use of words, but uh, for it to have grown and to have the stature that it has in the world now is mind-blowing to me that sort of it, it, it sort of gives i think a lot of the guys and girls of my era uh, as we're now marching towards retirement and and uh, and finishing our playing game or playing days I, I think it gives us all a lot of you know personal and collective satisfaction uh, to see that the industry has grown as it has to become you know a player in the world of wine Alistair Perbrick of Dubilt. He's been part of something very successful for Australia. Thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Alistair Perbrick of Tabilk. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.